Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. In the first three chapters of Romans, after showing us that everyone stands guilty before God because we failed to live adequately by his standards, Paul tells us another way to be made right with God. In chapter 320, verses 21 and 22, which Chris talked about last week, we know that, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. According to Paul, there's only one way for a person to be made right with God, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And what he's been saying is that we're we're all sinners. We all need a Savior. You know, it's been said that if a man goes to a psychiatrist, he can become a well-adjusted sinner. If he goes to a physician, he can become a healthy sinner. If he gets wealthy in life, he can become a wealthy sinner. If he goes to church, he can become a religious sinner. But if he goes to the cross in sincere repentance and faith, he can become a new creation in Christ, forgiven, reconciled with meaning and purpose in his life. And so the question I have for you this morning is, what kind of sinner are you? Adjusted or forgiven? Today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 4, the first part of it. I was going to do the whole chapter, but I just got through the first half, so I'm going to stop there. But Romans chapter 4 is really just a repeat of Romans chapter 3. It doesn't contain any new material, but it is different in how the material is presented. Whereas in chapter 3, Paul has explained the doctrine of justification by faith, in chapter 4, he illustrates it. In chapter 3, Paul made the great claim that we are made right with God by faith in Christ alone, and now he calls two witnesses to support his case Abraham and David. In verse 1, Paul says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. In other words, he is our George Washington. What did he discover about being made right with God? And then he tells us what that was. And then in verse 6, he says, David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Now, if you stop and think about it, this is a brilliant line of argument, considering who these two people are, because Abraham is the father of the Jews. The nation of Israel began when God made a promise to Israel's ancestor, Abraham, that he would make his descendants into a great nation. And David was their greatest king. The kingdom of Israel reached its high high watermark under his reign. And so these are two of the most important people to the Jewish believers. 
And since Paul, throughout chapters 1 and 3, has been opposing the nationalistic, works-righteous Jews, and since they were undoubtedly accusing him of not being Jewish in his message, he uses their founder, Abraham, and their greatest king to support his thesis. And this is what's happening in chapter 4. If ever there was a man the Jews felt was deserving of God's favor, it was Abraham. He was, he was their, the man who, because of his response to God, got this whole thing started. And Paul uses him as case study number one to show that a man, is just, that a man uh, was justified by works, by faith, not his works. So he's the first case study trying to get this truth across. And then he doubles down on this point when he cites David, who though he was Israel's greatest king, still needed God's forgiveness and mercy in a huge way in his life. And so in chapter three, Paul has laid out the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but knowing that theological concepts are kind of hard sometimes to get your head around, he now dresses them up in, in flesh and blood so it can be more easily understood. Paul realizes that the only way an ordinary person can grasp an idea is to see it embodied in a person. And so in essence, what Paul is saying is he's saying, okay, I've been talking about faith. If you want to see what I'm talking about in action, look at Abraham and look at David. First, Abraham, despite his great deeds, was still a person who needed to be justified by faith. His works weren't good enough. And secondly, David, despite his great sin, found forgiveness through faith. In other words, Paul is showing that Jews, he's showing the Jews that justification by faith is not a new truth. It's not something he invented. <laughs> it's anchored in their salvation history. Abraham and David were both made right with God through faith. We are told Abraham believed God and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. A generation ago, there was a biblical scholar by the name of Harry Ironsides, and he told about a time he was visiting a church and he went to one of their Bible studies, and the teacher in the class said, asked the students in their class, how were people saved in the Old Testament? And after a short pause, one man replied, by keeping the law. And the teacher said, that's right. But Dr. Ironside interrupted him and said, my Bible says that the, by the deeds of the flesh, no one will be justified. And the teacher was a little bit embarrassed, so he said, well, does anybody else have an idea? And another person said, well, they were saved by bringing sacrifices to God. And again, the teacher said, yes, that's right. And he tried to go on with the lesson. But again, Dr. Arnside interrupted him and said, my Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. This time, the teacher was kind of flustered and realizing that this visitor knew more about the Bible than he did, said, well, how, can you tell us how people in the Old Testament were saved? And so again, Dr. Arnside shared that they were saved by faith the same way people are saved today. 
That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. I want to look at these two exhibits this morning. First, then, we have Abraham, who was justified by faith. Verse one through th- verses 1 through 3 says this, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted that belief in him as righteousness. He was righteous because of his faith. At times it it, it probably seemed to the Jews that Abraham was justified by his actions. After all, he was a legend in their minds. But Paul points out If this were the case, then the logical conclusion was that Abraham would have something to boast about. If faith equals obedience, then the person who is saved would not be able, would be able to boast before God and others, for they would really, in a sense, be the authors of their own salvation. But Paul says not even the great Abraham was accepted by God because of his stellar performance, he was accepted simply because he put trust in and yielded control to God. He took God at his word and he believed what God had said. This verse uh, has a couple of words that are important. The first word is the word that's translated credited and down in verse eight, it's translated counted. Abraham's faith, we were told, was credited to him to his righteousness. And this is kind of a bookkeeping term. It means to put something on somebody's account. If if you put something on somebody else's account, that is now their money. It's in, in their account. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. You simply gifted it to them. Their money is now, the money that you had is now their money. And it covers their debt. They don't have any debt anymore if the amount that has been credited to their account covers their debt. And that's what Paul means in verse 3. When quoting from Genesis 15, 6, he says, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. His faith caused God to put on his account that he was righteous. It's not that his faith resulted in righteousness, as though, you, you, you know, if you have enough faith, then you will be a righteous person. Now, it's true that if we believe God exists, that he deserves our worship, then righteous living will flow out of that, but it's not the same thing as saying we're earning our righteousness. Nor is it that Abraham's faith was itself a form of righteousness that merited God's deserved favor. It's something much more than that. His faith is counted as righteousness. God treated Abraham as though he was living a righteous life, not because he was living a completely righteous life, but because he believed in what God had made available to him. Douglas Moo, the the 
uh, scholar on Romans puts it this way, the crediting of Abraham's faith as righteousness means to account him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. Now, the second important word in this passage is the word believe. If this gift righteousness is ours when we believe, then what does it mean to believe? (laughs) Well, we see throughout Abraham's life, there are times that he is commended for his faith because of his belief. You remember first when God told him to leave his homeland and his family and go where he didn't know uh, anyone and just go out into the unknown with God leading that God would make him the father of a great nation and Abraham took God at his word and went out not knowing where he was going. He did this because he believed what God had said. We see later in his life when Abraham and Sarah were too old to have a child and God had promised that he would have descendants, God reconfirmed his promise to Abraham and Abraham continued to believe even though it was impossible because of their age and God performed a miracle. Later, after they had Isaac, their miracle child, God tested Abraham asking him to give his son back to him the subject of the promise. And when Abraham demonstrated faith and a willingness to obey, again, God reconfirmed his promise to Abraham. Now, what do you notice about each of these cases? You notice that God spoke and Abraham took the difficult steps that he was instructed to take because he trusted God. It's been said that true faith always responds with actions. It's not just intellectual assent. And and in the great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, we're told that people's faith was seen by what they did. By faith, Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed God when he was called to leave home and go to another land. By faith again, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. By faith, Moses refused to be treated as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose instead the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And again, by faith, Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts so that the death angel would not kill their firstborn sons. By faith, the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though it were dry ground. And it goes on, it talks about Jericho and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And all these times it's talking about how their faith was manifest in what they did. It was demonstrated in people's actions. In other words, you can say all day, I believe something. But if your actions don't conform to what you say you believe, you don't really believe it because you do what you really believe. I have people all the time tell me, I I committed my life to Christ at a certain time. I prayed to receive him 10 years ago, but in their lives they haven't made any room for him at all since then. They seldom do anything that he's instructed them to do. They live their lives as though he doesn't exist. Their life is a testimony to their lack of faith, not their faith. If I believe something, I act on that belief. 
For example, if I told you that I firmly believe the, the, the stock market is going to tank, tank on Thursday completely and I don't cash in my stocks, am I convincing about what I say I believe? No, if I really believe something, I'm going to act on that. Now, you have to be really careful here because, again, it's wrong to say faith plus works equals salvation. That's what it sounds like we're saying. But it's important to understand that Abraham did not earn God's favor by leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. But on the other hand, true faith always results in works. So it's not wrong to say true faith equals salvation plus works. On one side, it's a means to salvation. On the other side, it's a result of salvation. And what's really biblical is that faith is a result of, works as a result of true faith. If you have true faith, it's going to be manifest in how you live. You know, too many people say they're trusting Christ when their lives are completely under their own control. Faith in Christ means trusting yourself to him. It means being willing to obey him like Abraham when he left his home at God's command and went into an unknown future. Faith leads to commitment because faith trusts. But that doesn't mean faith itself is a meritorious act. Ray Ortland puts it this way. My faith is not meritorious in value, but only instrumental in function. My faith is merely the avenue along which you, God, bestow mercy. It's not an invoice on which I can demand payment. He goes on and says, Therefore I abandon all lingering sense of my own entitlement and open my heart to the joy of your free grace lavished upon me in Christ. It's not what I feel or do that can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. People, that's why there's no boasting in heaven. We don't manipulate God to bless us by what we do. It's not because of our great acts or our powerful prayers or our tremendous effort, our dedicated devotion that God blesses us. It's our childlike trust in him that he responds to. Again, faith is not the avenue along which God bestows mercy. It's not an invoice on which I can demand payment. Paul then goes on to say, that there's two ways that something can be put on someone's account. He says one way is by way of a wage, and the other way is by way of a gift. A wage is something that's earned and deserved. A gift is something that's undeserved. And so in verses 4 and 5, he goes on and says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in a God who forgives sinners. And so think about your paycheck for a minute. When your boss pays you, do you hug him and jump up and down and say, 
I feel so grateful for what you have just given me. (laughs) No, why? Because you deserve it. And if he doesn't pay you adequately, you're going to be upset about it, right? Because you've earned it. You've worked for it. It's your right to get paid. But what happens if you're dropping in efficiency and your boss puts a $1,000 bonus in your paycheck and you ask him why and he says, I just want to show how much I care about you. How do you feel about the money now? (laughs) Is that different than just getting paid for something? There's a huge difference between a gift and a wage. Man does not earn God's blessing. He simply reaches out in faith and receives something that has been made available to him. This this is such a hard truth for us to get our head around. Because man wants to feel like in some way he has warranted God's approval. But if you ever ask God, what do I owe you? You're in trouble. You're in a dreadful place because you could never, ever, ever begin to repay God what you owe him. Charles Stanley shared an experience he had in a seminary class. He says, one of my more memorable seminary professors had a practice of illustrating the concept of grace to his students through an unusual method. He says at the end of his evangelism course, he handed out a final exam with the instruction, read carefully the entire test before beginning to take it. And as we begin to read through the test, it quickly became clear to each of us that we had underestimated the difficulty of the test that we were being given and that we hadn't studied near enough for the test. The further we read, the worse it became. And about halfway through, audible groans could be heard throughout the lecture hall. By the time we were turning to the last page, we were all ready to hand the test in blank. It was an impossibly difficult test But at the bottom of the last page, there was a note that read, you now have a choice. You can either take the complete test as given, or you can simply sign your name in this box, and in doing so, receive an A for this assignment. Stanley says, we sat there stunned. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A. Slowly the point dawned on us, one by one, we turned in our test and silently filed out of the room. Dr. Stanley says, you know, the rest of the day I just kind of worried about it. I kept mulling it over my mind, wondering if he'd really been serious and whether I'd really get an A just putting my name in that box. He says, later when we talked to him, he shared some of the different reactions he got to the exam. There are always students who don't read through the entire exam because they want to get the jump on others. So instead of reading through the test and finding the final instruction, they start sweating it out and trying to to answer the questions as they come to them. And they sweat it out for two hours before reaching the last page. 
Their ignorance caused them unnecessary anxiety. Then there are the ones who start to read the first two pages of the test and they get angry. And they say this test is too difficult. And they quit reading and they turn the test in without signing it because they never got to the end. They never realized what was available to them and as a result they lost out totally. One fellow, however, topped them all. He read the entire test, including the last statement, but decided instead of signing the box, he was going to take the test anyway. He didn't want any free gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He was unusually bright, so he got a C minus. <laughs> but he could have had an A. He says this story illustrates people's reaction to God's solution to sin. Many people are like the first group. They spend their whole life trying to earn God's approval, trying to in some way get him to, to approve of them. They've spent months sweating it out and always wondering if God's listening to their pleas for forgiveness and wondering if, if, if they have finally pushed him away too far. They hope they're worthy of God's forgiveness. And they're doing all they can think of to be forgiven. They don't want to be presumptuous. And so they live lives full of doubt. Other people are like the second group. They look at God's standards. They realize they haven't kept them adequately. Why even try, they tell themselves. They could never be good enough to please God. Instead of living under constant pressure or guilt, they choose just to abandon the search altogether. And what a shock it will be for them one day when they stand before God and realize what had been made available to them if they had only asked. Then there's the third person, the guy who took the test anyway. This was the good student, and he couldn't conceive of the fact that since he was smarter than some of the other students that he wouldn't get a better grade. It's not fair to be better than others and be treated the same. And that's why the moralist is the hardest person to reach for Christ. The outright sinner is often more ready to see his need of a savior than the pretty good person. But in God's economy, being pretty good is not good enough. Anything less than 100% is failing. The fourth person is the person who believes the promise, follows the instructions, trusts the teacher, and turns the test in empty. Abraham had no grounds for boasting. He didn't even take the test. He simply took God at his word and did what God had said. The righteousness that God gives us is based on faith, not works, and Abraham illustrates that. But that applies not only to seemingly worthy Abraham, it also applies to obviously unworthy David. Exhibit B is David, and he too is justified by faith. If there ever was a man who had reason to boast about his accomplishments, it was David. David was a king. He was a great king. He was the greatest of kings. He increased the nation's borders. He brought peace. He established Jerusalem as the capital. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back and made it the center of the people. 
And yet David had reasons to be crushed by his sinfulness. You know his story so well. He was an adulterer and through conspiracy also a murderer. And yet this strong, sinful man discovered the blessing of being a man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. In Romans 7 and 8, Paul says, David also spoke of this, this justification by faith, my message, when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, (laughs) whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared. Notice David doesn't say, what joy when you don't fall or you don't sin. He openly acknowledges he's a sinner. He sinned in such a big way, there's no way he can do anything else. And yet he knows that he is still blessed because, verse 8, the Lord has cleared my word. Did you hear that? Again, being in a accredited righteousness means that your sin is not counted against you if you've repented of it. doesn't change your status before God. And David's quoting, Paul here's quoting David's very own words in Psalms, in the Psalms where he says, oh, what joy for those whose obedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. David, who had this tremendous weight of sin on his back, could say he's free Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. He credited his righteousness to my account, and my sins are covered. Some people are offended by this. They think, God just letting someone like this go scot-free? In in this one act, he broke most of the Ten Commandments. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery with her. He he murdered her husband. He he put other things before God, and on and on it goes. His his, His case was hopeless. There's nothing he could do about his failure except appeal to God for forgiveness. And that's what David did. He simply acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon God's mercy. And the Lord cleared him of his sin. We all have something in our past that we deeply regret. Some way in which we failed. And many of us here think, if I could only back up the clock, I'd do things differently. And many of us here have been carrying a great weight of guilt for a long time. 
one that we wish we could be free of. And some of us feel our sin is unforgivable. We think we've made a choice somewhere along the line, a choice we can't undo, a choice that has greatly affected maybe someone we care about, and we can't get past it. And we live in a constant state of regret. We live under a weight, the weight of a guilty conscience. And we've lost the joy of living. John Ensor tells about his neighbor, Bob. Bob was a devout man. He went to church regularly. He was always in church. He read his Bible faithfully. He was a good neighbor, a helpful neighbor. He worked hard. He loved his wife. He helped out in finding resources for young pregnant moms and delivering crab, cribs and maternity clothes to them. But he says, but underneath Bob's devotion and concern for others was an angry man immersed in guilt. Bob had reasons to be angry. He had reasons to feel guilty. He had been severely mistreated as a child by his father. And add to this, life itself had been unfair to him in many ways. He, always, he had a quick flashpoint. He would get angry often. And as a result of his anger, one time when he was with his wife, they were arguing and he, he started driving faster and faster because of his anger and he was driving erratically and he lost control of his car and it crashed. And tragically, his wife was severely injured in the accident and though rushed to the hospital, she died a few days later. Adding to Bob's pain, he had to authorize the removal of the respirator that was keeping her breathing even though she had no brain waves left. She was 21 years old. He said to me, I murdered my wife and I can never forgive myself. John Enser says, you know, what do you say to somebody who says something like that to you? He says, I could have told him, you didn't really murder her because you didn't intend to kill her, and that's not the definition of murder. What happened was an accident. Murder is when you intentionally kill someone. But Bob's not remembering this horrific event of all the mangled steel and the shattered glass and the blood as though he were a lawyer defining the terms right. His heart's broken and he's overwhelmed with great regret because he sinned and his sin caused this crisis. And while it's probably true that he's being too hard on himself, he still is culpable. And Bob's conscience is not lying, even if it's overstating something. It was both wrong and foolish and sinful what he did and to try to convince him otherwise has no basis in reality. In a thousand years with millions of dollars worth of psychiatric care, Bob would not find relief. Bob's temper was sinful. His driving was reckless. The death of his wife was preventable. 
The guilt he feels is justified. It's reality-based. And the question I have for you is, is there an answer for a person like Bob? Is there a way to get past his past? In chapter 3, Paul told us this, God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People were made right with God when they believed, their guilt's gone, that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood for them. We've heard the story of so many David so many times, we don't understand his sin was even bigger than Bob's. It had much greater consequences. And yet he describes the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it in spite of all that guilt. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience their sin is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Do you realize your past sins can be put out of sight? What joy, he says, for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's gifted to us. Our righteousness is based on what Christ has done for us, not what we've done. Do you realize how good a news this is? <laughs> Christian psychologist Edward Welsh writes about regrets in an article he entitles, If Only. Do you have any if onlys in your life? In this article he says, it feels so right, so spiritual to live with regrets. <laughs> Think about that. He says it means you feel bad for the wrong things you've done, and that sounds like a good thing. If you forget those things, you're acting as if they're no big deal. How many if-onlys do you have in your life? <laughs> he says if you have a scrupulous conscience, you lost count a long time ago. He goes on and says, I knew a woman who was so filled with regrets that the burden of them started to feel normal to her. It was normal to get up every day and feel regret over all your failures. To be under this constant cloud of failure. He says, the first if only is registered as weights on her soul, but... It's like wearing 10-pound ankle weights and wrist weights all the time. After a while, you no longer notice them, but you feel sluggish and tired all the time, and everyone else seems to be going at a different emotional tempo, but somehow that's all normal. He says, here's the paradox. We live with regrets because we think we should. We think it's the right thing to do. That it's our duty before God. But the kingdom of heaven is regret free. 
The kingdom of heaven is regret-free. Because God liberates people from past regrets. Then he uses several examples. One of them is David, and I'll just share David since that's the illustration in this passage. You just think of David's sin with Bathsheba. It resulted in the death of their son. And his conspiracy to cover up the adultery resulted in the death of her husband. Later, even worse, his sin of numbering the people led to the death of 70,000 Israelite men. His sin did. But David's remorse was great and his repentance was sincere and you won't find lingering regret. (laughs) In its place is doxology to the Lord who freely forgives sins. David's remorse was great. His repentance was sincere and he left his failures with God. Do you believe that the kingdom of Christ is where you pay for your past sins and past indiscretions? Do you believe that if you store up enough regret and remorse, then finally you will sneak out of your self-imposed purgatory? Though you already know that no matter how much you stockpile the stuff, you always feel as though there's a little bit more you need to give. People, this, he says, is not the kingdom where Christ reigns. Well, says, while you have been repenting of your perceived contribution to past regrets, the real reason to repent is not so much those failures as it is by not repenting, you're saying, Lord, I don't believe you'll cover my sins. You might cover other people's sins, but I don't believe I can be confident in your goodness for me. I don't even believe that's permissible. He says, call it unbelief, or if you want to get nasty, call it pride in which you put yourself rather than the Lord first. Either way, you need to repent. I have my regrets, you have yours, but God's mercies are stockpiled even higher than your regrets. In closing, let me ask you this question. Can you believe that God will do what he says he will do for you? Can you believe that when you repent, God will cover your sins if you just ask him to help you? Can you simply sign the test and turn it in empty, believing he will give you an A? Can you take a leap of faith into the arms of a Savior and trust him to catch you? Faith is kind of like jumping off a cliff. If somebody doesn't catch you, you're doomed. But how do you know whether God will catch you or not if you don't jump? A a Christian is a person who bets his eternal destiny on the word of Jesus Christ. He's a person who trusts God 
to make good on his promises, to declare righteous the unrighteous man and woman who commits their life to Jesus and asks Jesus' sacrifice to cover their sins. Do you trust Christ enough to trust him with your sin? The gospel is such good news that there's a righteousness that comes not from effort, not from getting it right, but from surrender. It's good news that there is forgiveness for sin, for all sin. It'd be tragic to ignore such a wonderful gift. Just sign the test and turn it in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up, Lord, I just pray that if there are those here this morning who are living under the weight of regret in their life and they haven't been able to bring their failure to you and trust you to cover their sins, that they would do that before they leave here this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.